Well, good evening, everyone. It's wonderful to be with you tonight. Uh, we are going to be looking at one verse of Scripture that comes from Jude, the brother of Jesus. Uh, those of you who know the end of your Bibles well know that this is the book that comes right before Revelation. It's a really short letter, Jude. Uh, and we're just going to look at verse 3, and I've already got it up on the screen uh, for you here. But Jude says this. He says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Now tonight, as we dig into this verse, um, and as we think about uh, um, orthodoxy, and as we think about theology and the importance of sound doctrine, um, I just want to, to begin by alerting you to something that, that can often be true of those who have been in church settings for a long period of time. Uh, and, and this is the, the, the thing that you should be alerted to. Uh, you can easily lose your wonder. You can become familiar with holy things. You can become maybe over-familiar with the truth. And over time, you can begin to take God's word and God's work for granted. And if you aren't alert to this, eventually you'll be at that place where you may still sing the song, but you no longer sense that grace is amazing. Now, it can happen to anyone, but I think it especially happens to people who have been, church in, a, in, been in church for a long time. That's one reason that uh, I often say this, and this is how I opened the, the book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, uh, that the, the church faces her biggest challenge, not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. J.R.R. Tolkien once said that the, the most regrettable feature of human nature is how quickly we as human beings can become uh, um, unsatisfied with the good. Uh, spiritual dullness, blurry vision, hardness of heart. This is the challenge that you face when you've been a Christian for a long time. And you know, some of you in here, maybe in the past, uh, you experienced excitement and joy at walking with Christ, and yet, and yet somehow as the weeks or, or the months or the, the years have passed, if you were to really take a good look at yourself tonight or today or look at your spiritual state recently, you would say, I feel like I'm walking sort of like a spiritual zombie, still alive on the outside, something seems dead on the inside. And you can tell when this happens because a, a selfish sense of entitlement replaces a holy sense of expectation when you come to God's word, when you gather with God's people. And in the time we have this evening, I want to give you three words inspired from this one verse from Jude, three words that can help us keep or maybe regain our sense of wonder at the beauty of the gospel. And the first word is eager. So look at what Jude says as he kicks off the letter. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, and we'll just stop there for a moment because I want us to linger on that word because notice that there's an excitement here. There's an eagerness to talk about salvation. What I love about this is that this guy is still passionate. He's still amazed. He's still moved about the salvation that he shares with his readers. It's not a drudgery for him to talk about salvation. It's his joy. And just from that verse, I just want to challenge you for a moment to think, 
to take stock of your life and to ask the question, when was the last time you were eager to talk about how Jesus saved you? When was the last time you teared up when you sang a worship song? Or when you felt that stirring in your heart at grace unmeasured, vast and free, grace that saved a wretch like me? We can lose our sense of wonder so easily, can't we? When I was uh, 19, I bought a one-way ticket to Romania. I was a missionary student in Eastern Europe for, uh, for five years, and um, one of the things that I had to learn there uh, pretty quickly was how to maintain a supply of drinkable water. Because in Romania at the time, we weren't supposed to drink from the tap, so I always had to wind up having some kind of water. And in the, on the weekends, I lived in a, and I went to a village where I served the teenagers and kids and ministry in the village there. And in the house that I stayed in, uh, there were several children, uh, teenagers, uh, um, and whatnot. In the house that I stayed in, there was no running water at all. So we had to get creative and had to get used to, you know, washing up with buckets from the well and uh, you know, you get used to outhouse life when you <laughs> live in a house like that. Um, you, uh, um, I mean, it was, just, it was just the nature of it. It was how we lived for uh, when I'd be on the weekends. But I had to plan ahead because I was in a place without running water and because I couldn't drink the water from the well. I'm, I mean, I could have tried, but I, I don't think my stomach was used to it the way some of theirs were. So I, I just had to avoid it. So I had to always be thinking ahead okay, do I have enough bottled water? Am I thinking through that? What, like, what, what, what's the supply? Do I have the supply? And to the point that my first visit back home to the United States, came home for Christmas, and uh, I remember my first night after I got back, and I, I unpacked all my bags, and I, I, I went to my room, and I unpacked things and kind of surveyed my, my room, and I was just glad to be home. And I remember it was bedtime, and I went downstairs. I have the, this Hunter Green thermos that I would always have full of ice water before I'd go to bed when I was at home. And I went downstairs, and I put that thermos up against the, the, the ice thing in the refrigerator, and out comes the ice, and then out comes running water. And I remember I was walking back up the stairs, and I can still see myself. It just dawned on me. I was like frozen there on the staircase thinking, that was so easy. And for that moment, my mind, my heart was just overwhelmed with gratitude at the thought of running water, drinkable water, that had flowed like magic at the touch of a button. I mean, I was just, I just was sitting there thinking, that's amazing. That was amazing. I was so happy. Now, I wish I could tell you that my wonder at the marvel of running, drinking water has never faded, that you know, I've never muttered while changing the, the, the filter in our uh, refrigerator or we have a defect in our ice machine that doesn't work quite right. And, you know, that, but, but just like everyone else, the same as with me, you eventually lose that sense of wonder, right? Over time, you begin to get familiar, even with good things, even with great things. Uh, several years after that, for years, I was, uh, um, my commute to work every day in Tennessee, in Nashville. I went from Murfreesboro to Nashville every day. And my commute put me on this, uh, um, uh, uh, on the interstate. There's just both sides lined with trees. And I never really noticed them before until at some point I realized, you know, these trees are amazing. 
Uh, I have now one of those apps where you can like take a picture of a tree and it'll tell you, you know, what kind of tree it is and whether it's healthy or not and where it's native and where it's exotic and what you could do from it. I mean, because, you know, I know you look outside and you just think, oh, wonderful, these are trees. But like when you actually realize, no, they're not just trees. There's like this kind of tree and that kind of tree. And I remember uh, uh, going on that interstate and I mean, I was looking at all these trees on the interstate, and I mean, there's this, you know, there's a shagbark hickory, and it's, there's this sycamore tree, and then there's this towering oak, and there's the, the springtime purple of the Tennessee redbuds that were there. And it was, I mean, all I could do to keep my eyes focused on the road. I, I worried that at some point, I was going to wind up having an accident, and I would wind up in a ditch somewhere, and the, the, the officer would come up and be like, what was the problem? What was the cause of the accident? And I would have to say, uh, well, sir, it was, it was the trees. <laughs> I was distracted by the trees, you know? Not my iPhone, the trees. Uh, but but it, it was, I mean, the, when you think about how many times before and after, I must admit, that we just, wi- just whiz past these, these beauties on both sides without even giving them a second thought. The adventure of life is a fight for astonishment. It's a determination to resist growing bored in a world of wonders. And I would say that the Christian life is similar. It begins with spiritual astonishment. You know what it's like when you're first saved. It's spiritual astonishment at the glory of the gospel and the goodness and the beauty of Christian truth. But over time, even with good things, even with the best thing, our eyes grow heavy, we lose our sense of taste, And that's when errors creep in. We become sluggish with the scriptures, bored with the Bible, drowsy toward doctrine. And that's when we're vulnerable to drifting from the truth. We wander when we lose our wonder. And so that's what we see next. So the first word is eager. He's excited, right? But then the next word I'll give you is concerned. Concerned. Jude says, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend. So let's just stop there. He found it necessary to write. Why? Why to make this appeal? Why? He felt, found it necessary to express his concern. So even though Jude has not lost his wonder and his amazement at the gospel, he's concerned that the people he's writing have lost that excitement, and he is concerned, concerned that they've drifted from the truth. If you've ever been to the beach and you've uh, gone out into the water to, you know, swim or maybe to kick back on a float or maybe you're, you know, like my kids and they get their goggles on and they want to see what kind of fish are in the water, you know, or uh, you just see what's kind of what's happening underneath the, the waves or maybe you want to try to catch a few waves on a boogie board to get back in. You all know that moment when you've been at the beach for a little while and you suddenly look up and you look at the shore and you're thinking, wait a minute, who moved my stuff? only to realize, oh, no, my stuff is right where I left it, right over there. It was you who moved, right? Because if you weren't paying attention, just without even trying to, imperceptibly, the current was just pulling you along. And if you, if you don't constantly reorient yourself and recenter yourself with their things on the shore, well, over time, you're going to be drifting down the shoreline. And it doesn't even take any kind of action to do it. In fact, if you don't take any kind of action, it will just happen naturally. Your beach chair, your umbrella, your towels, you think someone moved them until you realize, no, it was you who moved. And see, this is what the, the, what the truth is like. Unless you keep 
checking where you are or you work against the current, you will wind up far from where you started. Drift is natural when it comes to doctrine as well. Because of our natural tendency to grow bored with things or to, you know, to, to uh, um, uh, we can become apathetic or we can uh, not be attentive as, as well as we, we might want to, not to mention the powerful currents in our culture that are dragging us along without us even realizing it. We're always in danger of drifting from the truth. In, in fact, Hebrews uh, 2.1 says, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. One of the most important truths that the church must remember is that we didn't invent Christianity. And we are not responsible to alter, adapt, or revise the faith. We are responsible for passing on what we have received. You can put it this way. The key phrase of the Christian is not, I create, it's, I confess. What we believe matters. By confessing our faith, we are standing on something that we know is true. And in confessing our faith, we are saying not, I'm going to build a religion. No, we're saying, I receive, I believe in revelation, that God has revealed himself. It's not, I invent, it's, I receive. And yet every generation faces the temptation to downplay or to deny aspects of the faith that don't fit our times our confession begins to go wobbly. We start to wonder about the goodness of Christian truth. And then the temptation comes to, to settle, to resolve that sense of unsettledness that we might have about Christianity or, or by Christian teaching, by, by moving away from orthodoxy or by updating traditional doctrines. And we think, and everyone always thinks this, that we think that this kind of adaptation will result in a bigger and a more expansive vision of Christianity. But I'm here to tell you today, that is just not true. It's just not true. Errors and heresies, no matter how much that they market themselves as expansive and inclusive, are always smaller and narrower than orthodoxy. And I want to show you what I mean in some of the, in some of the time here. So we're going to come to that third word from Jude in a minute, but I have a few uh, subpoints under this, this one about the concern that I want to, uh, to go over just as we look at the nature of particular heresies, okay? So the first thing to understand about heresies and things that we ought to be concerned about and that we've got to notice if we're not going to drift away and we're going to recenter ourselves is that heresies usually weaponize one truth against others. And here's the thing you've got to understand. You will always find some truth in theological error, something true in every heresy, I mean, it wouldn't catch on if there wasn't something to it. Uh, and this is what happens. So error creeps in when, when people attempt, usually, to simplify Christianity by picking up one truth, and it may even be a vital truth, an important truth that makes up part of the Christian faith, and they're holding tightly to this one truth while letting go of other important truths that are also very important. So over time, that one truth, separated now from the rest of orthodoxy, gets called into action, and it becomes a, becomes a weapon against Christianity's other truths. And divorced from all the others, it becomes the, the unassailable foundation for a new creed, and then a new religion gets, instructed, gets, gets constructed on top of it. Let me give an example of where you can see this happening. So take the inclusive and the exclusive Jesus. 
Okay? Here's an example. Consider, let's start with inclusive. Consider the inclusive truth of Christianity. Rightly understood, that is the bold claim that Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for everyone. We are to go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel to everybody, right? Regardless of race, nationality, creed, ethnicity, whatever it is, Christianity is inclusive in that sense, right? But here's the catch. We live in a culture today that generally sees inclusion as always good and exclusion as always bad. And it is possible to take this one truth the inclusiveness of Jesus, and to hold it in isolation against others, and then it becomes a weapon against other important truths. So this truth that describes Jesus's shocking inclusivity, and you just, you, you know the Bible stories, you, you read the Gospels, and you see it everywhere. Jesus uh, got, he really made the Pharisees mad because he was dining with all the wrong kinds of people, right? Like Jesus, one of the reasons he got crucified was because of how inclusive he was. Uh, but you take that one truth about Jesus, and when you separate it from other important Christian truths, such as the fierce exclusivity of Orthodox Christianity, and you see what begins to happen, because think about it, Christianity is exclusive too, right? The apostles said there is only one name under heaven and on earth by which people can be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The shocking nature of Jesus' inclusive call is matched by a radical exclusivity in his teaching. Just think about how Jesus talks. Unless you build your house on the rock of my teaching, you are a foolish builder doomed for destruction, right? Unless you bear good fruit, you will be like a tree cut down and thrown into the fire. Until you find the narrow path, unless you find the narrow path, you will walk the broad road to destruction. See, you listen to Jesus' teaching, and he is not offering multiple ways to live, multiple paths of inclusion. No, there's the road to life, and there's the road to judgment. But you see, error always leads to the simplifying of the faith and a diminishing of Christianity's explosive power. And so today, the temptation is for some, the temptation for some is to say, inclusion is at the heart of Christianity. And you know, their right to see inclusion is in the New Testament. But when they wield that one truth over against all the others, when they champion the call to inclusivity and fail to, 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 to champion the countercultural call of exclusivity, well, then they're laying a foundation of what will eventually become a plank of a new religion. You know, likewise, we have to say that there's danger on the other side of this as well. There's always the temptation for some Christians to put exclusion at the heart of Christianity and to wield that as a weapon as well. And they're right to see the uniqueness of Jesus in the New Testament, the clear lines between the church and the world. But once you wield the truth of Jesus' exclusivity against his inclusivity, if you, if you fail to display the corresponding picture of Jesus with arms outstretched to the world in self-giving love, well, then over time, you will devolve into a sect that no longer connects to the wider tradition of Christian churches. And you'll lay the foundation for another kind of faith. It'll just be you and you alone and only your church. And, you know, whether it becomes a, a, a little cult or whether it becomes, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the only church or the frozen chosen or the remnant of the faithful or whatever it is. 
So what's the solution? Well, I think we've got to do some history. Because what happens when you put inclusion and exclusion together the way the Bible does? Well, think about the early Christians. The reason the early Christians faced the wrath of Rome was because they held together the inclusive call and the exclusive claim of Jesus. You know, Caesar, back in that time, Caesar could mostly tolerate tribal religions, ethnic religions, with an exclusive claim about the one true God. That was okay as long as it didn't pose a social threat to the empire. And you know, Caesar would have been fine. So just a little bit of exclusion, like a little exclusive sect over here, well, as long as you know, they keep to themselves, not a big deal. And Caesar would have also been fine with the, you know, the, the uh, really inclusive people. If, you know, there's a new savior named Jesus, like fine, as long as they just want to add Jesus as one more deity in the pantheon alongside all the other deities over there. And besides all these religious practices, I mean, they're all leading to the same place. Just, just offer your pinch of incense to appease the gods. That's really all you need. What put Christianity in the crosshairs of the Roman authorities was that the early Christians refused to bend the knee to Caesar's ultimate authority out of commitment to this explosive combination of exclusivity and inclusivity. Because this little group not only insisted on the exclusive claim that Jesus is the only way and not the idols of Rome, but they also issued an inclusive call to everyone, regardless of ethnicity, to repent and believe the good news to repent and believe and become part of this new worldwide family. That, that was the surge of energy that shocked the Roman Empire. The earthquake that brought down eventually all the ancient Roman religions. It wasn't exclusivity on its own or inclusivity on its own. It was the combination of both. And that is the thrill of orthodoxy. So that's the first thing to note about heresies that they, they usually weaponize one truth against others. But the second thing to note about them is that they usually insist on either ors. Heretics choose one truth over another. But remember what I said. One truth disconnected from other truths will lead you to insist on whatever principle or doctrine that you favor. And over time, that doctrine, when it gets isolated from the others and it gets exaggerated by the attention you give it, it becomes distorted. And eventually it severs you from the rest of the church. Ironically, sometimes it's the heresy hunter who is most prone to fall for heresy. Because what happens is you can zero in so narrowly on a particular doctrine that you think is so vital, so important, that you don't want to see it lost. You zero in so much on that particular doctrine and you, you can make your personal view the standard of orthodoxy or you can raise the temperature to where every doctrine is of equal importance and over time, you'll fail to keep central that which is most important. And then you're more likely to fall into error yourself. A narrow-minded attachment to one truth can lead us away from the truth and all of its beauty and complexity. Orthodoxy calls us to paradoxical truth. Heresies are always about either-ors. Orthodoxy freely embraces both ands. See, in orthodoxy, we see the coming together of, of seemingly contrary opposites, things that wouldn't seem to make sense, holding them together. But notice what orthodoxy does. It doesn't bring them together in, 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 in some sort of uh, compromise or mixture or amalgamation of some kind. It simply affirms both of them in their fiery fullness. 
our vision must be big enough to see truth from multiple angles, to see how truths connect and how they uphold one another. The Orthodox throughout the centuries are those who keep their eyes wide open to take in Christianity and Christian truth in a way that honors its depth. Orthodoxy presents Christian truth in multiple dimensions. Heretics squint. And that's been the case for thousands of years. The, the preeminent example of orthodoxy and heresy is, takes us back to the Trinitarian, the Christological controversies of the church uh, uh, back in the 300s and 400s AD. These were debates and discussions about what it means to confess the name of Jesus as our Savior and our God. And just think about it. Nothing could be more important for confessing our faith in Jesus than a proper understanding of the one whose name we bear, right? So these debates mattered back then and they still matter today because the whole drama of redemption, of God rescuing sinners and God restoring the world, the whole drama of redemption hinges upon the reality of the Son of God being both fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. So when you put the Trinitarian controversies in proper perspective, once you see that that's a debate about, about the nature of the God of the gospel itself, well, then you understand why church leaders were so intent on getting this doctrine right. So there were multiple heresies that arose during this period, and all of them were simplifications of the truth. Each heretic was insisting on a narrow sliver of orthodoxy because they were trying to safeguard one truth at the expense of others. And the orthodox insisted that we have to have the whole truth and we have to do away with these simplistic parodies. No matter how sincerely the people held them, no matter how logical they sounded or even maybe how biblical they sounded at the time, they rejected heresies on one side that would confuse the natures of Christ and thus drown his humanity and his divinity or swallow up his divinity and his humanity. They also rejected heresies on the other side that would have split Jesus up into parts, making, well, his body is human, but his soul is divine, or to present him as if he were two persons masquerading as one person or something like that. Uh, many of you, those of you that have done some, uh, some church history throughout the years or whatnot, you may be familiar with the story. There was one man in particular who wanted to preserve the oneness and uniqueness of God the Father. A church leader from Libya. His name was Arius. But in so doing, he demoted the Son of God to the status of a creature. Now, he would say, well, Jesus was still divine in some sense. Jesus is still preeminent over everyone else. Uh, Jesus is certainly like God, but he said he wasn't eternal. He wasn't of the same substance of the Father. And he even had worship songs that went along with uh, the things he was teaching. There, one of the songs was, there was a time when the sun was not. That's what he and his followers sang. And listen, for decades, uh, it looked as if this song might prevail. Now, I know there are all sorts of pop culture type ideas that, you know, well, it's because the emperor got involved and then brought down the power against those poor little heretics and in favor of the orthodox or whatnot. And I'm thinking, no, 
Actually, it was way more complicated than that. The, the emperors wanted peace, uh, but like Constantine's son, Constantius, was actually more of a sympathizer with Arius than with, with, uh, with uh, uh, um, uh, the Orthodox side. So, so actually, the, the levers of power were being used against the Orthodox at multiple times. But so Arius is singing the song. It looks like he's got the power of the empire behind him, at least at some level, or uh, uh, those who wanted this debate to be over. But over against those heretical whirlpools that were drawing so many Christians away from the truth stood the black dwarf. That was the label that his enemies stamped on this Egyptian man named Athanasius. Athanasius was a bishop. He was exiled five times by four Roman emperors. Uh, he was a man short in stature, which is something that uh, um, uh, Raymond and I both appreciate. Uh, <laughs> And, and, yet, and yet, he towered over the era like a giant. You see, to Athanasius, opposing the teaching of Arius mattered because salvation was at stake. We confess our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fully human one whose death atoned for our sin and the fully divine one whose power alone can save us. He was very worked up about this because he believed that Arius and his followers were robbing God of his word. He called them plunderers. And Athanasius refused to cut God down to size. He would never join the chorus of narrow-minded Arians who resisted affirming the absolute equality between God the Father and the Son. Athanasius knew all those clever songs that were promoting heresy, so he just raised his voice to sing the orthodox melody even louder. At times, it was like he was on his own. There's the saying, Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. Here you have a man who was doctrinal, he was dogmatic, he was detailed, and through this man and others like him, with all of their failures and flaws, with all of their mistakes and missteps, and they had plenty of them as well, the Spirit of God through these people kept the fires of orthodoxy burning. And even when it looked as if heresies might douse the flame and leave the church in darkness, Athanasius and those who came after him knew the Redeemer they had trusted. They were plugged into the source of orthodoxy, and their faithfulness endured. It isn't true because they won. They won because it was true. A third thing to note about heresy is that it's narrower than orthodoxy. Now, we could multiply the examples of teachers throughout the centuries, heretics who squinted before the brilliant light of orthodoxy and, and, and sought to narrow or dim the light to something more acceptable. Because you see it all throughout church history. The unmixed glory of Jesus Christ is everywhere celebrated by the orthodox and is everywhere challenged by the heretics. There were the various forms of modalism, which that basically narrows the orthodox understanding that we sing one God and three persons, you know, we have that formulation talking about the Trinity, one God and three persons, that the modalism makes it one person who's just changing his revelation depending on the era. In this era, he shows himself as father. Later, he reveals himself as son. Now he manifests himself as a spirit. One person, three masks. No, but orthodoxy insisted on the bigger, the broader, the more amazing truth that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always. Then there were the tritheists who made the three persons out to be three gods who shared the same substance. Three gods, three persons. But orthodoxy insisted on the bigger and more wondrous reality of the oneness of God in three persons. 
You have the Macedonians who sought to narrow our view of God the Spirit and demote him to the realm of creation. You have the adoptionists who believed Jesus was human, but later at his baptism, he was adopted by God to be his son. You have the partialists who saw the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as equal components of one God, as if the three persons, though, are only fully God when they come together. You see this? Narrowing, narrowing, always narrowing. But then there was orthodoxy always insisting on the breadth and depth of Christian truth as revealed by God in his word and through the work of his son. The Orthodox held tenaciously to multiple truths and fended off errors, theological errors, coming from multiple directions. And that leads us to a fourth thing to notice about heresies, that they are like cracks that spread through low-bearing walls. One of the ways that heresies wreak havoc in the church is by spreading like cracks through load-bearing walls in the structure of the Christian faith. Errors don't usually start by going right after, you know, the the, the great creeds of the faith. They start by neglecting or rejecting implications of those great statements of faith. Here's something to remember. Uh, When you think back to some of the the famous statements of faith, uh, creeds and confessions that have been so popular for Christians for so long, uh, the, those, the creeds like the Nicene Creed that was done in response to Arius back, you know, the 325 and, uh, and 381 AD, uh, those, are, those are brief statements. They're pretty narrowly tailored to the most essential aspects of the Christian faith. But just notice that they're not narrow in their scope. They're not narrow in their implications. So take one of the oldest creeds, the Apostles' Creed. Some of you may have uh, learned that creed by heart or have said that before. It was actually an old baptismal formula that the ancient church would use. When people would get into the baptismal waters, they would recite some version, some form of the Apostles' Creed. But the first, one of the early lines of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Just think about all the implications that come from that one line. Or take the line that says, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. I mean, there's a whole world of wonder that is opened by that one line if you want to explore the deeper truths behind that. And when we say we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, well, that carries with it a stunning array of corresponding truths related to our humanity, to the nature of the world, the goodness of creation, uh, our accountability toward our maker, the, the givenness of nature, our maleness, our femaleness, all of that's wrapped up in that one line. So I want to pause here to consider a controversy we've seen in recent years about the Bible's teaching regarding the the nature of marriage. There are some today who say, you know, marriage isn't in the creeds, is it? Sexuality is not mentioned in the creeds. And so nowadays there are some who want to, to, to cordon off questions about sexual morality and the meaning of marriage from these bigger debates about orthodoxy, error, and heresy. And you'll have people that will say, you know, surely we can just agree to disagree on this because it's not in the creeds. Well, the problem we run into is that marriage is not a one-off doctrine that is disconnected from the rest of Christian teaching. The Bible begins and ends with a marriage ceremony. The first is in the garden between a man and a woman, and the last is in the garden city when the church is united to Christ, the bridegroom, and heaven and earth are reunited forever. So do you see the the complementarity 
of male and female. It's woven into the tapestry of creation. And you can even see the difference and the beauty of it in the interlocking distinctions between heaven and earth and the seas and the land. And, and God designed the man and woman to come together as a sign pointing toward deeper mysteries of eternal communion within God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there are some today who will say, well, there's a trajectory in the Bible toward greater openness, toward greater inclusivity, right, regarding marriage. There's a move toward more variety. And so we should be open as the church to, to new forms of partnership that, you know, that, 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 that get rid of the male-female requirement for marriage or even the limitation to two persons for marriage, you know. But what's interesting about that is that if you read the Bible from beginning to end, the, if there was such a trajectory, this, that idea, it gets the development backwards. It's in the Old Testament where you find polygamy, adultery, men who took wives and concubines, and you got extraordinary laxity for divorce, right? That's all Old Testament. The moral demands are stricter in the New Testament. Jesus, and why, when Jesus is asked about divorce, what does he do? He points back to God's original intent in creation. So if there is a trajectory in the Bible, it goes the other way. Jesus' comments on marriage were so strict that he surprised his closest followers. That's why, no matter how controversial it may seem to be in our day and age, I believe we must maintain confidence in the unchanging witness of the church in relation to sexuality and marriage. It's very clear in the scriptures. It's implied by the blueprint of the creeds. And to disregard the fundamental nature of our bodies, of our embodiedness, is to damage what, what uh, Matthew Lee Anderson says is an architectural doctrine of the Christian faith. It's a load-bearing wall in the structure. And that's why virtually every Christian leader, and you watch this happen, every Christian leader or church that seeks to change just one little truth like this eventually drifts into a whirlpool of countless other errors. The cracks start small, but they don't stay that way. Cracks multiply. And nearly everyone, we've seen this happen within evangelical circles. In the past decade, nearly everyone who has said, well, you know, the church should slightly adjust its vision of sex and marriage. Now you find the same leaders that are advocating for views well outside the bounds of orthodoxy. Some of them deny the existence of eternal judgment. Others say that the cross is no longer the place of atonement. More than a few chastise evangelistic people for sharing the gospel because they, they see that as being blind to the new ways that the Spirit is moving in the world. So I'd say it's beside the point to argue that marriage and sexuality are not explicitly spelled out in the creeds. Neither is infanticide. Neither is theft. Neither is the command to love our enemies and to, to pray for those who persecute us. There's a, a whole host of issues connected to Christianity's moral vision that are not explicitly laid out in the creeds, and yet few people would say, well, you know, these other elements of Christianity, of the Christian testimony, they're just optional. You know, you can just take them or leave them depending on what society says. No, we must not think that we can take shelter under a minimalist interpretation of the creeds so as to get out from under the scriptures. So what's the response? In a time when people don't want to hear those kinds of strict truths or, or in a time when Christians themselves can become bored with doctrine, well, the key to renewal is to taste and see that the Lord is good. And where do we stand the best chance at regaining our spiritual passion? Well, it's the gospel. 
It's the gospel, the royal announcement that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life in our place, died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, rose triumphantly from the grave to launch God's new creation, and is now exalted as king of the world. Ancient truth, ever new. J.I. Packer, when he was a professor, he was known for telling his class that his whole purpose was to say, day in and day out, look, this is the biggest thing that ever was. That's what he'd say. And people would ask him, why do you point again and again to the gospel? And it's because Packer would say, it's because we Christians, most of us, still haven't appreciated its size. We've been Christians for years and years, and yet we haven't fully grasped it. So how do we respond to the possibility of drifting? Well, we've talked a lot about errors, and we've talked a lot about heresies, and we've talked about looking at you know, the need to recenter ourselves. But I would just say, I wouldn't want anyone to leave here fearful of drifting. Because I believe we're to look at the possibility of drifting with the eyes of faith, not fear. I want to take us back to Jude, to this letter. Because later in this letter, what's interesting is Jude calls us to build ourselves up in holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Notice what he said, what it says. He says, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Recenter yourselves, right? Reorient. Don't drift. Come back to God's love. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. So he, notice he says, keep yourselves. But then look at how Jude opens his letter. You look at verse 1. He describes his readers as called, loved by God the Father, and what's the word? Kept for Jesus Christ. Kept for Jesus Christ. So do you see that beautiful paradox? By faith, Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, and by faith, we rest assured we are loved by the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So we face these challenges with faith, not fear. We are those who are loved by God. We are those who are kept for Jesus Christ. How do we resist the drift toward doctrinal error? Well, I think the third word we'd want to look at then is confidence. Confidence. Look at the rest of the verse. Contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. And I want you to notice an article. Contend for the faith. Did you catch that? It's not about creating your faith or living according to my faith or revising and adapting some kind of faith. It's about confidence in the faith that God delivered the message that has come to God's people once for all. Jude is confident in the truth. Now, we hear a lot these days about speaking your truth or living your truth as if, as if truth is just a synonym now for perspective or experience. And don't hear me wrong. I think we should make room for sharing our perspectives and we should talk about our experiences but if our tendency is to always put the word truth next to adjectives like my and your and never the, well, then we are violating the very definition of truth to begin with. And a lot of people today, when they think about religion, they put religion within the category of self-discovery and self-expression and all the seeking and finding takes place within the caverns of your heart. You dig down to your deepest desires. You incorporate religious beliefs and spiritual practices that resonate with your needs. 
and then you construct an inspirational identity that suits you. When it comes to religion, just like everything else, there's your truth, there's my truth, your religion, my religion, your preferences, my preferences. But you know what? At the end of the day, that's boring. It's boring. The greater adventure is in exploring something beyond the depths of your own heart. The greater adventure comes when you find something beyond the realm of my perspective and your experience. It's when you, when you find something real. You know, discovering truth is a little bit like dealing with the weather. Um, you, now, you may have your preferences about weather. Some of you in here may love yesterday, the soft, cool rain of an early spring day. That is not my preference. I, I like late spring, summer sunshine, low humidity, you know, cool in the mornings, warm in the afternoons. I think that's my, my weather. Some of, you got, some of you may love thunderstorms in the summertime if you like, you like to watch them roll in, you know. Some of you, I mean, some of you may like different kinds of weather. I've got a friend who likes to actually walk through the rain. Like when it rains, he lives in California, maybe it's because it doesn't happen very often. When it rains, he goes outside and walks, walks for, through, through the rain. Uh, but you, 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 some of you may love snow. Some of you may hate snow. Some of you might like the first snow and that's it. Uh, but whatever it is, you have your preferences. But listen, nobody says my weather and your weather. <laughs> because you're not in control. It's just something that's there. It's something that happens. You've got to adapt to it. Now, we've done really good in modern society at sheltering us from the weather outside, our sheltering ourselves. And a lot of people want a faith that is perfectly suited to their own preferences. We want the comfort of an air-conditioned house that is perfectly suited to the temperature we desire. And isn't that amazing? Yeah, amen. Thank God, right? It's like running water, running water and air conditioner. I thank God that I live in the time I live in. Uh, but but with a button or an app, you know, we adapt our conditions to our preferences. We're used to doing that in so many different ways of life. No matter what's going on outside, we control our comfort. But when someone says the adventure of life is in discovering their truth or speaking their truth, that's like being enamored with the thermostat. It's like being excited about setting the temperature that brings the mild comfort of an air-conditioned home. I want to tell you all here tonight, the bigger adventure of Christianity calls you outside, away from domesticated doctrines, away from palatable heresies, into a wild and glorious world of wonders, where the weather is what the weather is, and you've got to dress for it and deal with it and respond to it and adapt to it because it's real. It's not something you crafted for yourself. It's not an environment you tailored for yourself. The excitement is in going outside and dealing with the world the way it is. That's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And we can be confident in this faith. It has stood the test of time. The beating heart of orthodoxy is not a personal adventure of self-discovery. It's not a patching together of our preferred versions of the Christian faith. No, it's the connection to saints in various cultures and climates, Christians all over the world, with different languages and traditions, all united 
by a common confession in Jesus Christ the King. I'm convinced what the church needs today is to recapture that thrill of orthodoxy. The foundational truths that are consistent with the scriptures upon which Christians through the ages have demonstrated agreement. And I know, I know, I'm, it's an uphill battle when I use a word like orthodoxy and put thrill next to it. Because most people, when they hear the word orthodoxy, they don't think thrilling. They're probably, you're probably thinking a dry and dense list of doctrines. You're like, okay, maybe they're necessary, but really? I mean, it's kind of like expecting your math book to make your heart beat faster, you know? But I say those two words belong together. I agree with Dorothy Sayers. When people in her time said that churches were losing members because preachers were insisting on dull dogma, she said, no, they've got it backwards. She said this, she said, it is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. It is boring to adapt the Christian faith to better fit people. What's exciting is to adapt people to better fit the Christian faith. And this is what she says. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. There's a reason why Jude's confidence in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, urges him, or leads him to urge his readers to defend the faith, to contend for the faith. The reason Jude can say that is because he knows that orthodoxy isn't some dry, abstract definition. This is a portrait of a real and living God. If you love someone, you want to get that portrait right. When you love God, you want to represent him rightly. You want to speak correctly about him. You want to know him more. We're not studying theology to pass an exam. We're studying theology to have an encounter with the God that theology describes. Christianity is not just giving a mental assent to a set of propositions. It's giving yourself to a person. And for that reason, the statements that we make about the identity of God, they really matter. They really matter. We want to know him more. We want to know more about him because we want to know him. And it's not in abandoning truth where there's excitement. It's in plumbing the depths more and more, going deeper into the mystery, seeing the eternal wonders, marveling at these paradoxical truths that we find all throughout the scripture, keeping our eyes wide open, knowing that for all eternity, we will continue to grow and grow in our knowledge of God and never come to the end of him because he is infinite and we are not. So here's the challenge I want to leave with you today, that you have confidence in the enduring and exciting truths of Christianity. Think of the Christian faith like an ancient castle. Spacious rooms, vaulted ceilings, mysterious corridors, a vast expanse of practical wisdom handed down from our forefathers and mothers in the faith. In every generation, there are some people who spend their whole lives inhabiting the castle but failing to sift through its treasures. There are others in every generation that tell you, you know what, the castle stands on the way of progress. We should tear that down, rebuild. There are a few that say, well, you know, the castle's really beautiful. Maybe we can leave the outer shell for aesthetic purposes, but we can gut the interior and do whatever we want on the inside. That happens in every generation, but also in every generation, God raises up those who see the value in the treasure. Men and women who maintain a deep and abiding commitment 
to recognize, to accentuate the unique beauty of Christian truth so that future generations can be ushered into that splendor. The future of the church will not be forged by those who tire of the thrill of orthodoxy. It will be forged by those whose roots run deep through the ages of the Christian church and back into the pages of God's inspired word. The future of the church will not be forged by those who jump on the bandwagon of fads and fashions, who hang on to a a, a passing moment or movement as if that's what's going to assure the future. No, the future of the church will follow the path of pilgrims who are empowered by the Spirit, who are thrilled by the discovery and definition of orthodoxy. Men and women who can see past the fads and fashions and the errors of the day, but who lean fully into the richness of the truth that they've inherited and are determined they will pass that on to the next generation, undiluted, unchanged, uncompromised. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And what does that future look like? Well, at the end, we will see a throng of once sinners, now saints, gathered around a throne, lifting our voices in perfect pitch to praise the one who is both lion and lamb, joining the endless song of the angels and powers of heaven. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, we will sing. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. And with the glorious company of apostles, the noble fellowship of prophets, the white-robed army of martyrs, we will testify to the majesty of the Father, the worth of his only begotten Son, the power of the Holy Spirit, our advocate and guide. And in that never-ending moment of acclamation, seeing Jesus Christ exalted, the King of glory who did not shun the virgin's womb, we will look back on all of our sufferings and our tribulations, our sorrows, and our sins, and we will see them all swept up and set within the tapestry of God's eternal plan. And all of our feeble, paltry attempts to express the inexpressible, all the foolishness of humanity's errors and heresies, all of that will crumple before the solid reality of the triune God who saves and sanctifies. And here's what's beautiful. Even now, Sunday after Sunday, in fitful steps and starts, sometimes singing off key, sometimes fumbling the words, we gather in churches all over the earth, and for a moment, for a moment, we get a glimpse of what's coming, a foretaste of the future. And in that moment, our hearts thrill to join the eternal song as above, so below. That's our prayer, and that's the future of orthodoxy. Thank you very much. So what we're going to do is we're going to have microphones. There should be one over here. In a moment, there's going to be one there. We're going to ask you if you'd be ready to walk to that to ask your question. State your name. State your question. Uh, Question quickly, less on comment. Uh, But what I'd like to do, Trevin, is kind of get us started uh, at the beginning of your lecture. And first of all, thank you for teaching us. You said that we wander when we lose our wonder. 
Maybe could you just take a moment and talk to us about the implications of that statement and the thrill of orthodoxy as it relates to our own personal spiritual disciplines? And then even maybe a little bit more as you were highlighting right there at the end of how we should think of our ecclesial participation, uh, right? Th those are often kind of, you know, uh, added extra things that we should do. But that doesn't seem to be what you're saying. We're to immerse ourselves in those realities right. individually and corporately, and maybe even some of the subversive aspect that you spoke about over lunch. That's the bonus that they get to hear. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I think, I think a lot of times we think that um, whatever's thrilling or whatever's exciting must be spontaneous. And that's really the, the way that, you know, and, and look, it's a wonderful thing when the Spirit does a spontaneous work in our hearts, and sometimes He does, you know, when suddenly you feel that jolt of uh, the Lord speaking to you, maybe through the passage that you're reading in Scripture, or maybe through a psalm that you're singing in a worship service. But one of the things that I think is important is in all this talk about what's thrilling and what's exciting is that it's not always going to feel that way. Uh, sometimes, you know, you may be in a situation, you're clocking in and out of a really unfulfilling job, or you're, you're at home with, you know, kids, and it doesn't seem really, the Christian life doesn't seem that exciting. One of the things that's beautiful about Christianity is that it teaches that even our small and seemingly insignificant choices are invested with eternal significance. That, that even though we may not feel the sense we recognize that God is at work here and God is doing something, even at the times we, we don't feel it. The same is true of, of, of spiritual disciplines. So there's some of the things we do that we, that we think are important to do, like reading the Bible or, or praying or whatnot. I tell people, sometimes people are frustrated with their spiritual disciplines because they don't necessarily feel like it's done anything to them. They didn't get the lightning bolt of inspiration when they read the scriptures that morning, or they didn't really feel the closeness of God in prayer uh, at that time, or they went to church and they just, there wasn't really anything that they felt like just really, you know, captured their imagination or their heart in that moment. And what I want to say is, uh, um, you shouldn't expect that to be all the time. You don't do that for the feeling. You do that because, of, uh, because first God says to do it, and also because God's forming you even in those things where you may not necessarily feel it at, at, in that moment. How many of you remember exactly what you had for dinner two weeks ago tonight? You have to rack your brain and think about it. And some of you maybe don't remember what you had yesterday. Uh, but it sustained you, right? And there are times when, you know, not every meal that you have in Scripture is going to taste like steak, but it's still sustenance. It still sustains you. It still nourishes you. Not every workout that you do when you go to the gym is necessarily going to result in you having the physique that you thought you would have after one or two times. Believe me, I've tried. It doesn't work that way. But over time, there are changes that happen, and you become a different kind of person as you're in, 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 in some, of these, uh, some of these habits. So one of the things that we, we talk about is that when, when we talk about the thrill of orthodoxy, it doesn't mean simply going after what's what seems exciting in the moment. It's recognizing the bigger picture of where the excitement lies and then forming your life and, and beginning to, to alter your life around those things so that, so that you're then able to, to become the kind of person who understands and celebrates and enjoys the truths of the Lord. All right, brother over here. Anybody else, go ahead and move to the areas where you're going to be asking questions in just a moment. Name church question. Yeah, I'm uh, Travis. I go to Redeemer Bible Fellowship. And uh, early on, you spoke about how um, heresies are always narrower uh, rather than, you know, more expansive. I, I think in terms of the description of them that, you know, you, you gave examples of that, but it seems in terms of who they include, that 
tends not to be the case, right? Things like Arminianism, right? It's free will because it's open to everyone, not just the elect, um, you know, uh, universalism, whatever. So I, I guess my question is, do you see that on the other other side, or how do you see that, you know, that heresies are are born in a, in a way of, of making it more narrow in terms of sure. who they include and not just how they're described? Yeah, that's, great. that's a great question. Uh, generally, heresies market themselves as more expansive. Like you notice, like a lot of people, when they talk about inclusion, but they don't have the exclusive part, they talk about, you know, the... the um, uh, it being it being broader, but in a sense, what what people are saying when it comes to the so, for example, to take the the back to the ex, inclusion exclusion that I talked about, um, when when uh, um, to say basically, well, Jesus is for us, and we're going to be open and believe that there might be lots of people around the world who don't confess faith in Jesus and yet can be saved. That seems like it's more broader, right? Like universalism, everyone's going to be saved in the end. But what, you're actually, what actually is being, being said there is when it comes to the Great Commission, what you're saying is Jesus isn't for everybody, right? You're narrowing the Great Commission. Jesus says to go out into all the world and preach the gospel, and that there's no other name under heaven. It's a universal call, but you lose that with that. Now, speaking of Arminianism or whatnot, now, there are different uh, um, uh, uh, theological positions within the umbrella of, of orthodoxy. So Arminianism would not be considered a, a, a heresy. It's a, it, there are different groups that, that uh, uh, within the, the church that are going to have debates over exactly how does God's sovereignty and free will work together and whatnot without it necessarily being a heretical view. You might have someone that you believe is in theological error you may see that theological error is even serious, but it's down, it's down the, the, um, in, the, in the hierarchy of truth, so to speak. It's below, it's not the, the Trinitarian core that we would, that we would agree on. So on, on that, um, uh, that's, that, that's more of an intramural conversation rather than a, a heresy versus orthodox. Heresy is what we would say, and forgive me for using the word because people will think I'm using it wrong, is what we would consider damnable doctrine. It's such, such that to believe this is to actually reject an essential aspect of the Christian faith so that your soul is imperiled. So I think we've got to keep the H word for the, the, the big heresies. And then there's all sorts of debates between different denominations on what constitutes error, what's closer to the truth, what the Bible teaches, and, and whatnot. So it's a great question. Over here, Steve. Name church question. Steve, Only Baptist Church, and part A and part B, related. People that drift into what I would say are unhealthy preaching, unhealthy churches. God may be working there, but I would not recommend it. Part A would be uh, the pastor believes... Is that a question or is that a statement? Are you asking him if he th- agrees part, with part, that? Part A, uh, that's the intro, and then part Got A it. and B are the questions. Got it. Of uh, just two different drifts. You with me? Mm-hmm. A, part A, uh, the pastor preaches, he believes in Jesus, death and resurrection, forgiveness of sins. Amen. God does not punish. God is nonviolent. He says that in a sermon. I'm guessing he has trouble with propitiation, wrath. Okay, so that's one guy. And you can imagine some of the political stuff he's doing in sermons as well. Part B would be, and I've seen this several friends, they're so... Um, tired of uh, the divisions in Protestantism, that they'll go Catholic or maybe Orthodox. Uh, you know, Orthodox may be justification shaky, Catholic, 
possibly false gospel. So that's part B. And if I could just come back to the progressive for part A, um, the sin of conservatives and uh, the lack of sensitivity. They're so sensitive to problems. So you see the two parts? Yeah. Going back traditional and the progressive. And, uh, and they both will profess some orthodox doctrines. Yeah. And I don't know how to approach them. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you for, for that. Uh, so there's a lot there in that. Yes, um, but the, in with, 140 with, characters or less. No. Yeah, that's right. No, uh, with um, uh, it is. I, I, you know, there are those who get tired of division and whatnot. Speaking to your thing about some wanting to go to Catholicism, I'm just like, well, enjoy that because there's a lot of division within Catholicism. It, what's interesting is that Protestants and uh, uh, within, you know, if you look at the, the 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 tree that's sort of rooted in the in the the core Trinitarian bedrock of the faith that. All, all wings of the church agree on, the Orthodox, the Catholics, and Protestants all agree on those fundamental, those creedal statements, like what does it mean for us to confess Jesus and the triune God or whatnot. Um, you've got a, a couple of those, Orthodoxy and Catholicism, who on the outside look more unified than they are. And then you have Protestants, it's just like, well, we just show that we're all divided in our denominations. But, but, but when you actually look, there's quite, there's Way more division on the on the once you get past the sort of the facade of unity from the outside, and you actually look at the inside. So I just think it. I you know whenever someone tells me Protestants are too divided, I'm going to go be a Catholic or an Orthodox. I just think you 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 may think the grass is greener, but you don't know what you're heading into. There's a lot of division. Uh, even now, there's a possible schism brewing right now in Germany uh, in Catholicism over sexuality and marriage. Uh, sort of in defiance of Catholic teaching and whatnot, which, and for the most part, um, on that would be stuff that we we agree with. Uh, uh, I, I'm saying we agree with uh, the Catholic position on what marriage is, as far as it's between man and woman. Have differences of whether it's a sacrament or not and things like that. Um, but uh, um, the the I, I like what you said about the the tendencies here. Sometimes you wind up. Those, those of us, and I put all of us in here, because if you're here on a Sunday night for a theology lecture, I'm going to put you in the doctrinally minded camp, okay? Uh, if you're not, I hope you will be by the time you leave. That's part of the point of this, of this uh, talk. There is that danger, though, of becoming almost so sensitive toward anything that seems to be uh, to smack of some kind of theological drift or error or whatnot, that you can actually wind up losing the heart of Christianity, even though you seem to have the head. Um, I know some people who can articulate doctrines with extraordinary specificity and who yet do not have the fragrance of Jesus about them at all. And so sound doctrine is important because it's healthy and life-giving, but it is not in itself the goal. It's not. And they're, they're you know, uh, I, I've, known, I've known people who have followed Jesus and gone to the church and may wind up having some aberrant doctrines here and there or whatnot who have been way more of, uh, um, uh, have show way more fruit of the spirit than, uh, than some people that are able to check the, you know, the, dot all the I's and cross all the T's theologically. The, the goal, again, is not to pass a theological test. The goal is to know Jesus and then to represent him well. And so I think we have to recognize that drift is real and it happens and we should guard ourselves against it. But we should recognize that drift can happen in more than one direction. And it is possible, Sinclair Ferguson talks about this, it is possible to have the, the entire body of orthodoxy 
and all the joints and the bones and everything in the right place and for the body to be dead. It's very possible. And so I, I, I wouldn't want to give the impression, I certainly hope I haven't, that, that getting the doctrine right in all the particulars is the, is the important thing. We're all wrong somewhere. One of the things I say in the book is everyone's in error at some point. We're going to have to wait for God to straighten us all out <laughs> at the end. We know where the really big errors and heresies are because Satan doesn't have that many tools in the toolkit. He constantly comes back and forth. And we're able to recognize where those extraordinary heresies are and be able to guard ourselves against them. What we have to be careful of is, is rushing too quickly to put people in, the, in, the, in that category uh, when they don't belong there. There's going to be all sorts of differences of opinion that Christians may have related to, to politics and our posture to the world and exactly how we're supposed to relate. And, our, and we're going to get things right. We're going to get things wrong. Sometimes we're going to be off. We're, you know, in conversation, we'll have to like, you know, wrestle with each other on all sorts of things. But on those specifics, when the cultural winds are blowing, what I want to tell people is dig down deep to the bedrock of the faith, plant your flag there, because you might not know the answer to everything, but on those things that the church has said, this is where we stand, you can have total confidence, not just now, but 100 years from now, if the Lord tarries, and if the Lord doesn't come back by then 100 years from now, Christians will be standing in that same place, and they're going to be confessing that same God. And that's ultimately why we can have confidence in what we believe and, and how important it is. Amen. We're going to take Sarah's question. Steve, where'd you go? There you go. I'd only say one thing for your friend who's drift into the one side where there's a changing belief, right? You, you, want to communicate, you want to communicate to them the most loving thing you can do as a believer is to be very clear. It seems loving to be unclear and move. The most loving thing is to actually be very clear. For the other friend, I'd just say, this has the illusion of stability, right? But sin is everywhere. And so you, you can't make anything completely, you know, sealed off from, the, from sin getting into it. No, no system is going to protect from sin getting in there. That's right. And I think you just, you wedge in there and then bring both of them back to being a Baptist. All right, here we go. <laughs> I'm Sarah. I go here. I really liked your analogy of the weather. Um, I know this is what your intended meeting was, but I was kind of pulled towards thinking about mental health and the shifts of some of those emotions. So here's my question. Could you give some thoughts on how to help orient those to reconnect with orthodoxy where, where their thought life is unstable and easily changing? Oh, that's great. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that we're supposed to do that scriptures tell us is that we are supposed to take every thought captive, and we are supposed to be aware of empty philosophies and deceits and things like that. And so this is one of the things that uh, is, vital, is, a vital important, is, a, is a vital importance for Christian discipleship, that we want to, um, to be the kind of people who are able to rest in a particular identity and an understanding of truth even when everything in our mind may be screaming at us that this is, that, 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 that this is not you know, a, a, a safe place or this is not the, the place to, it's not the harbor in that storm, the, the storms of life and whatnot. Um, I, to, saying to someone who, who feels like their thoughts are always pinging around and they're not able to find that, that, that orthodoxy as that comforting safe spot, the, 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 the answer to that cannot be move away from orthodoxy or whatever's going to make you feel most comfortable. It can't be. Because at the end of the day, it would be false comfort. Uh, what, what, we, what we want to say to someone is, um, uh, is, 
uh, to, we want to bring them back to the, the truth of God's word and to, and to have them anchored there and to recognize that the anchor will hold no matter what's happening in the, the storm of the, of the mind. We know that minds are broken and fallen just like other parts of our body. We, we recognize that, the, that sin has all of these kinds of effects. And so what, what we, we ultimately want to is, I don't even know that I would say that the emphasis on orthodoxy is necessarily the best part of that. The emphasis, I would say, is just on Jesus. Um, the connection to Jesus. Recognizing that it's not so much getting all the doctrines, right, that's going to calm the storm in the mind. It's in holding on to the hand of the one who actually can calm the storm and calm the wind and the waves. So ultimately going back to him, bringing people to him, not being obsessed over whether or not they're articulating all of the, 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 the fully God and the fully man exactly in all the right ways, but bringing them back to, to Jesus Christ saying, you know, in, that, in the words of that old Rich Mullen song, hold me Jesus, hold me Jesus. That's ultimately where I think we would want to, to bring people. So maybe just a few things that you'd recommend uh, either uh, for reading and just say, hey, you feel like you're struggling and you want to start somewhere other than your book. Uh, think about, <laughs> right, like buy his book, right? Uh, but as we, they think of cultivating that wonder for the thrill of orthodoxy and a love for those things, any kind of reading practice you'd say, hey, I'd get this or these authors, I'd do this type of thing uh, to, to help cultivate that in their life. I could certainly point you to some authors that have been that way for me, that have, I feel like have, that present Christianity in a way that opens my mind to, to wonder. And I mean, it won't be surprising to you, any of you who have any, read any of my stuff, that it, I go back to C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, G.K. Chesterton, those, those British writers from last century who, to, who tended to, to, to really uh, um, uh, want to, to uncover that, that sort of wonder of Christianity. But more than reading, I would say one of the best ways to regain a sense of wonder at the beauty of Christianity is to share the gospel. Because when you are able to see the gospel through fresh eyes, you know what it's like when you're a parent and you're, 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 um, you've got a, you're, you're taking your kid on a favorite roller coaster at a theme park you've been at, or you're, you're taking your kid, or you're wanting to show your kid a movie that, or a television show that you really liked as a kid, or you know, you're, you're giving them a toy that you really appreciate as a toy. One of the, the joys of parenting is introducing your child to experiences that you have, that meant something to you. And one, why, one of the reasons it's so wonderful and beautiful is because when you do that, in that moment, you're reliving that wonder. And the same is true when you, when you disciple your kids or you share your faith with your kids or you see your, your kids light up at the story of a, 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 at one of the, the central Bible stories or when you're telling someone that doesn't know Jesus and you're seeing that the, 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 the atonement suddenly clicks with someone, like it will stir up wonder in you better than any book you could read. Um, and so we, one of the reasons that we, we sometimes lose our wonder in the gospel is because we're, we've not been around new converts or haven't been involved in making them. And that's one of the, the things that I recommend, even more than reading, is, is uh, look for ways to present these truths. And then as you do, you'll feel the freshness uh, on the inside as well. Would you help me thank Trevin for his time here this evening?